Let's turn in the Scriptures now to Matthew's Gospel and chapter 10. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10. And this morning we're reading verses 1 through 8. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 8. God's people, let's pray to the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank You for speaking to us. We pray that we would hear and believe what we hear and submit to all that we hear from Your Word and obey You. Pray as well that we would not try to usurp Your authority by trying to play the head of the church, we are not. We are no Pope. And we are certainly not Jesus Christ. Uh, but You are and Your Son. And so, Father, we ask that You would grant to us to hear Him. And that we would submit to the King and Head of the church in all things. As well, Father, we ask that You would open our hearts to uh, hear the Gospel. And see our need of Christ. To see our sin And see how much we need our sin removed, lest we be condemned with the wicked and be destroyed forever. And so save us from our sins in Christ your Son. We pray that we would see that today, believe that today, and uh, fall before you and, and seek salvation in Christ alone. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 1. These are God's words. When He had called unto Him His twelve disciples, He gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter. And Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip, and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the publican, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Lebaeus, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely ye have received, freely give. Those are God's words. If you have uh, listened to sermons on the calling of the disciples before, the focus is most often on the calling, uh, but something is always in the background that we don't consider, which is vitally important to the church. And the glory of Jesus Christ. And that's that Jesus Christ is head of the church. He is the king of the nations as our mediator, ruling and overruling for his glory, for our sake. Uh, Ephesians 1 says the entire universe he is king over. And even to work all things, Romans 8, work all things together for our good. And we know in Psalm 2 that he is the king. We know from Psalm 110 that He is the Mediator King or the Priest King. And as the Mediator King, He is head of the church. Ephesians 5, even as Christ is head of the church, it says. Colossians 1, and He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. And so as King and head of the church, He has full complete authority. 
And isn't that a lot about what we've been hearing about in Matthew's Gospel? The authority of Jesus Christ, King of His kingdom, the church. The full and complete authority of Christ over souls spiritually to teach as He speaks to them and speak to us His Word uh, to the hearts even of His hearers. Right, That's what we learned in chapters 5-7 through in the Sermon on the Mount. He has full authority to teach us His Word. The authority of Christ over bodies physically. All things physical He has complete authority over. And that's chapters 8 and 9. And here we are again, the complete authority of Jesus Christ and His kingdom as head over the church. The church is who? The church is the bride of Christ. All those who profess faith with their children, He has complete authority over all. It is His kingdom. And He has complete sovereign rule over His kingdom. Even the church. The first point this morning, the king and head of the church. The king and head of the church. Look at verse 1. It says, And when he called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. And there it says that Christ called unto him his twelve disciples. Then verse 2, it says, Now the names of the twelve apostles... Are these? It says the twelve apostles. Christ determined that there should be not only disciples in His church, like all of us are, those who are learning from Him and following Him, but that there are these apostles that should be part of His church. There should be church officers in His church. He determined that there should be apostles. He determined who they should be and what the apostles should do as He teaches them here what they are called to do. Christ did that. No one else did that. He did it because He is King and Head of the church. Who determined that the apostle, an apostle, should be an office of the church? Christ, the head of the church, did. Even at the very foundation, the very root, Christ determines what the church is. What happens in the church is determined by Him. Everything about the church, what the church is, what the church does, what the church looks like, it's all determined by Christ because He has complete authority over the church. He is the king and head of the church. Do we have apostles today? You might ask that. No, we absolutely do not have apostles today. Christ called the twelve apostles in that office of apostle for a time so that the church would spread very rapidly among the nations from uh, Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Quickly. And we find today the church is all across the world. There are no apostles today at all despite what some... Other churches might say or might put into place throughout the world and even in our nation. But the continuing offices of the church today are the ministers of the gospel, elders, and deacons. And we could go into others, but we're not going to do that right now. The call to office is no longer by the audible voice of Christ calling men as He called Paul on the Damascus Road, as He called these men, it's no longer by the audible voice of Christ calling men, but by the qualifications and commandments we find in the Word of God. And yet still Christ is King and Head of the church today. No different than at this point in Matthew 10. And we must submit to Christ because He's King and Head of the church in all things when it comes to the church. And in all things. But especially, as we're looking here, all things when it has to do with the church. We must submit to Him as to Him who is the King and Head of it. We must submit to Him in regard to the form of government of the church. We must submit to Him as it has to do with the worship of the church in everything. The actions of the church. 
the evangelism of the church. All of it, whatever you could come up with, is if it has to do with the church, Christ is head over it and He commands exactly what must be done. Everything concerning the church is under King Jesus. Why are we Presbyterian? Because Christ commands a Presbyterian church government in the Scriptures that there would be elders. Right? How can men be called to the offices of the church? He gives in His Word the qualifications for these offices. 1 Timothy and Titus, right? We see some of the other qualifications uh, uh, spread out more like in the book of Acts. And so, in every congregation, there should be, according to God's Word, elders, ministers of the Gospel, deacons. So there should be no one who holds the office who holds office in Christ's church who doesn't meet the qualifications for those offices. Why? Because Christ determines who are elders, who are ministers, and who are deacons. Well, yeah, you'd say. But this guy over here, he would be a great addition to the elders. Not if he doesn't meet the qualifications. And how many times... Maybe you've heard of that. This guy's going to grow up. We've talked about that in the past. This kid's going to grow up because he knows the Scriptures. This young kid, he knows the Scriptures. So he's going to be a minister of the Gospel. No, not if he doesn't meet the qualifications. Well, yeah, but he's a lawyer. He'd be a great elder. Or a doctor. Great elder. He's so smart. Not if he doesn't meet the qualifications. What if the elders ordain someone who doesn't meet the qualifications? Because that does happen. What if the church worships in a way contrary to Christ's command? Because that does happen. You know, friends, what that is called. It's called rebelling against Christ, who is king and head of the church. And how do you think that will end? What are the consequences going to be? Are there going to be good consequences when we rebel against Christ? No, he will send his chastisements or his judgments. He might remove the minister or the elders who did so, who, who ordained the man that shouldn't have been ordained. He might remove them. He might take the lampstand, which is the, the congregation, and remove the lampstand, like Revelation talks about, in judgment. He does that. But Christ not only gives us the form of government that we should have elders and deacons and minister of the gospel and what we are to do in worship and how we are to worship, etc., but He grants power to those whom He calls. Look at verse 1. It says, And when He had called unto Him His twelve disciples, He gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. He gave spiritual graces to these apostles he gave the, these apostles miraculous gifts. Those things that He had been doing in the last two chapters, right? And even if you go back before that, since chapter 5, 5 through 7, we talked about the spiritual authority and how He taught and preached the Word with authority. And then in chapters 8 and 9, how He was doing these miracles. What well, He gives here, these apostles... The calling, the office of apostle to go out and do those things that he has the authority over. And that he's shown that he has the authority over. Body and soul. And how can he do that? Because he's king and head of the church. He's God. He's the God-man. So He has authority over all things. He has power over all things. He, he alone then can grant that authority and power to others of whom He chooses. Because He has that full, complete, sovereign authority. And He chose to do so here with the twelve apostles. And He gives the grace 
of preaching. Who gives the grace? It's Christ. It comes from Christ by His authority. Look at it. Think of Ephesians 4. Excuse me. He that descended is the same that also ascended up far above all heavens, that He might fill all things. And He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure and of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Pastors and teachers are a gift from the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the church. In Matthew chapter 9, we just heard this, Matthew chapter 9, verse 37. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. That he would send the laborers forth. Christ sends the pastor. He sends the teacher to his bride, the church. He, he is the head of it. And so he has the authority to do that. And he alone has the authority to do it. And so now in chapter 10, the mediator king, the head of the church, sending forth these men whom he had chosen into the harvest. Right? And the lack of faithful ministers today, as we now apply this to ourselves, the lack of faithful ministers today must be viewed as a withholding of them by the king and head of the church. And therefore, we must be humble today, just as we were taught to do at the end of chapter 9, to cry out to Him in prayer that He would send forth laborers into His harvest. That the harvest is plenteous, but there's no laborers. There's few laborers. And He hasn't sent them. He's withheld them. And so we plead out, plead to Him. Christ sends the pastor, the teacher, the elders, the deacons. Well, then we ask, who, who determines the message that's preached? He does. He's in authority over everything in the church. If Christ determines who the preachers are, who determines what is preached, well, He does. He's the king and head of the church. It's, it's not you who determines. It's not the congregation who determines what is preached. Contrary to what many congregations think, and you guys don't have a problem with that, and I'm thankful for that. It's not the minister who determines what is preached. It's Christ that determines what is preached. And what does He say? The Word is to be preached. The Word is to be preached. You see a lot of rebellion in the church today of people who determine to preach many false things and worldly things. And and then then, uh, even when the truth is preached, congregations have a problem with that. And so they go and they pressure the preacher to preach other things. And he starts preaching other things because he fears man. Tickling ears, right? And there's many who are preaching not what Christ has ordained preachers to preach. But Christ has a message to be preached. And that it, that gospel, the Word of God, must be preached then. Verse 7, Christ institutes what is to be preached. And as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His kingdom. His church is at hand. His kingdom, His reign, His rule over all is here. The ministers of the Word are to be ministers of the Word of God. Servants of the Word of God. Now that we have the full text of Scripture revealed to us, there is no more that will be added to it. We no longer, therefore, have apostles and prophets. And it's the message of the Word of God. This very book, this book, the Bible's Scriptures, this very book, that every man who would be a minister of the Word must preach, must be prepared to declare not more than what is in the book, and not less than what is in the book. As, again, sorrowfully, so many pastors today do. They add to or they take away from. And often they take away because they don't preach the whole thing. 
They're scared to preach the whole thing. Their doctrines that they have believed from aspects of the Word are false teaching, have led them to not teach the whole Word. First Corinthians 2, the Apostle Paul and it says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. You think of that, friends. Paul, uh, to the Corinthian church, is saying, he explaining in that chapter that he was going out to the Gentiles, preaching, and they wanted to hear what? They wanted to hear the latest philosophy, a new philosophy of the day, something new. But what did Paul give them? What did Paul preach? He preached the Word. Not man's wisdom, so that then we could believe man's wisdom. But He preached the good news of the Gospel. He gave them the wisdom of God. Didn't matter what they wanted to hear. He preached the Word of God. He comes not with His own mind, but He comes to give them a message from God. That's For the preacher is a non-negotiable. Lots of elders and church members want to negotiate that. But it's, for the faithful preacher, non-negotiable. The preacher must preach the message that is from God, His Word. And how is Paul able to preach it? But by the Holy Spirit and of power granted to him by the King and Head of the church. Jesus Christ. And so the message is determined by Jesus Christ alone. In Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul says to the elders of Ephesus, And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house. A few verses later he says, Wherefore I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. So consider that, friends. What if the minister is ashamed to preach the whole counsel of God? That is, if he's ashamed to preach from all of the Scriptures, that there's some place in Scripture that he's ashamed to preach from, like the Song of Solomon, or scared to preach from Jeremiah, one of the prophets, Lamentations. Because that's not a very positive message. And uh, not very positive for people to hear today, it would seem. But the message is Christ to determine. If If the minister won't preach all of the Word, then how can you expect the people of God to be unashamed of any of Christ's words before this world today? If the gospel minister is ashamed to preach aspects or parts of the Word, or the Word, then you can expect that the people of God who are hearing that preacher will be ashamed too. When the world comes and tempts them and discourages them. The message is Christ to determine, because He's head and King of the church. The ministers He calls are to declare the entirety of His message, His Word, unashamed to all who would hear. The King and Head of the Church. It is Christ. second point this morning is submission to the King. Submission to the King. Look at verse 2. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these... First Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the publican, James, the son of Alphaeus and Labaius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, 
or Simon the Zealot, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Notice there, friends, because there is much made of Peter. Right? Peter's the first one named. Most likely because he was often the, the one who spoke for the twelve disciples. Maybe because he had that personality of like some of us have to to speak. And some want to be more quiet. And that's fine. But there's much made of Peter by the Roman Catholics as the first Pope. But notice here, there's no higher office given than anyone else on the list, listed. He is one of the twelve apostles. Not greater than or less than the other eleven. Even Judas Iscariot, who would betray him, not greater than or less than any of the other eleven. There are no classes of preachers. There are no classes of apostles. There are no classes of elders. There is no one who has a higher authority of one office than anyone else in that same office. And that all under the complete sovereign authority of Jesus Christ, King and Head of the Church. Peter had no such superior office to any other friends. And of all these men, they come from a variety of backgrounds. We should remember that there are some fishermen, some not. There's a tax collector here, a publican, Matthew. He worked for who? He worked for the Roman government as a tax collector. And there was one here also part of a zealous Jewish movement. That's why he's named Simon the Zealot. In other places here, Simon the Canaanite. He was part of a zealous Jewish movement to do what? Overthrow the Roman government. So here you have Matthew, the one who works for the Roman government, and Simon who's supposed to be overthrowing him. The same group of people. The same set of apostles that Christ calls. Right? So they're all from different backgrounds called by Jesus Christ. And these two men, Matthew and Simon, these two men, like that, one for and one against the Roman government previously, called together. And here in Christ, having called them to be apostles, they are, those two men and all of them, united. They were called to fulfill a ministry. They were laborers now on the same side to preach the kingdom, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how can Christ bring this about? Because He's the King and Head of the church. And He has full and complete sovereign authority over all things for the sake of His church, Ephesians 1 says. Even in the calling of the officers of His church. Christ called them by His power and authority. So through their submission to Christ, they were united. And that is the same for members of the church too. How can two enemies, who were once enemies, come together and sit at table with one another? As we will, Lord willing, next Lord's Day when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's only because Christ calls them to Himself to serve Him and they submit to Him and bow the knee. Now you ask the question, but I struggle with some church members. And they are... They really grate against me. And children, what does that mean? You know what a cheese grater is? You put your hand on the cheese grater and you put your hand across it. What does it do? That's not good. Right? Feels bad? Grates against you. It's not good. They don't 
you don't feel like you get along very well. A nice way to put it. I struggle with some church members. That's what we say. Some of us will say that. Then you're not submitting to Christ in everything. That's what that means. You're not submitting to Christ in everything. Are you submitting to Christ in everything? Because He is King and Head of the church. And if you're submitting to Christ in everything, and the other person you're thinking about is submitting to Christ in everything, that will necessarily bring you together to be one. To be one together. United, just as the church all the way together, is to be united as one. That won't mean that you compromise on all the truth, uh, and you compromise on everything, and the other person does nothing, uh, but remain in various sins against you. No. And you never compromise on the truth, by the way. But it doesn't mean compromise for one and the other person just does what they continue to do in sin. That's not complete submission to Christ by His church. But in Christ being King, submission to Him leads to unity. You want to be united, you want to be reconciled to a brother or sister, submit to Christ in everything. Matthew and Simon were united in Christ in submission as disciples of Christ. The glue of... Sometimes we think there's, a, there's like this special glue, personally, between people. Uh, because we come from a common culture. Like I grew up on a farm, right? And so I have a natural tendency to get along very well with people who grew up on farms or who are farmers. And I can understand them very well. Or you come from a similar background or society or um, wealth class. Or uh, there is you're part of a family in the church, a blood family in the church. That glue that holds that together, that there is, will prove inadequate under pressure, under affliction. If all that is shared in the church are those things of a natural kind, family, blood blood family, um, we come from similar backgrounds, um, we came from the same, same city, we moved here, but we're from the same city. All those common things that kind of help us to get along with some certain people, that will all be inadequate and fall under affliction. Because it's of a natural kind. And when there's an attack by the world, the flesh and the devil, that glue will not hold. The real unity of the church rests upon a shared submission to Jesus Christ and the finality of His Word in all things. Now, some families in this church, right? We can have an example. Families in this church hold together so much more because, not because they're family bloodline, but because why? They're submitting to Christ. And there is greater unity there. And so it's the blessing of the Spirit of God working in the hearts of the people of God so that they share a commitment to Christ being the King over His church and over all things and His authority that He speaks to us in His Word. And we submit to that in everything. Or we seek to submit to that in everything. And that's where you will have unity. In the church, in doctrine, in worship, and in everyday life as a Christian. Common submission to Jesus Christ. And so therefore we need the grace to cultivate within each of us individually hearts and minds ready to submit to Jesus Christ in everything because He's the King and the uh, head of the church in everything, over everything. And it is alone in this way that the blessing of unity will be enjoyed by the church, the bride of Christ. And so when you go to other churches, uh, different churches, uh, including this one, you can see 
greater or less unity. And that's all based on how much submission and how little submission there is to Christ. Because that's what He teaches us in His Word. But if we rebel ourselves, if one of us, if one of us, one of the many of us, rebels against Jesus Christ, the unity washes away. And we've experienced that as some have rebelled and gone out. Where's the unity with them anymore? It's gone. When they've fled away from Christ, it's gone completely. When there's refusing to submit to Christ in one place with one person or many, you will not have unity. And that's why the assortment of men could be formed into one group of apostles. These, these twelve could be. Even with Judas Iscariot as one of them. Submission to the king. Thirdly, graces do not guarantee a new heart. Graces do not guarantee a new heart. Verse 4, Simon the Canaanite and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed Him, and has betrayed Christ. Because kids, uh, Judas Iscariot, if you didn't know, uh, betrays Jesus Christ right before He is crucified. Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed Him. And it's Christ the King, it's Christ the head of the church who brought this man Judas into his close company, made him an officer of the church as an apostle. And that might cause us to be confused. Does this mean that known, unconverted not Christian. Unconverted men should be members of the church or officers of the church. No, that doesn't mean that. Even if a man preaches the truth, that does not mean he should be a minister of the gospel. What Christ has ordained and warns, it does not mean that we can ordain and determine ourselves. He gives us the qualifications, friends, for a member of the church. He gives us qualifications for an officer of the church. Which of those offices of the church, the qualifications have one being godliness. And yet there have been many men who have been ministers of the gospel, who have been elders, who have been deacons, even apostles and prophets in the time past, who have been ministers, who held these offices and who were unconverted, rebellious, and not part of the elect of God. And this passage shows that an unregenerate man for a time may appear no different to the people of God than a normal Christian. Or even they may appear to be a godly Christian to us. And so we know because of sin and the fall of man, there are limits to our human judgment, discernment. And so that such unconverted people may end up members of the church. The same unconverted men may end up as ministers of the gospel. Saul, King Saul, in the Old Testament was what? He was among the prophets. So were countless other false prophets who were termed, deemed prophets. Judas Iscariot was, by the authority of Jesus Christ, the king and head of the church, given power against unclean spirits, casting out devils, healing all manner of disease and sickness. Graces like that. Graces as given by the Holy Spirit are not a proof, that is, like gifts, are not a proof of a new heart, of being born again, of being a Christian. Matthew 7. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? 
and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I, that's Christ, will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. These great and mighty graces, like the apostles had, break that down to us, which we have, we might say, lesser graces. We don't have these miraculous gifts that we can do by the Holy Spirit. But these gifts and mighty graces of the Lord given to man are not a proof that one is a Christian. Judas had these graces, these mighty graces. And yet he betrayed Jesus Christ. He showed showed everyone, whoever heard the Scripture, read the Scripture, and Jesus Christ Himself, that he was not a believer. And he apostatized. But this should not cause us to stumble. We should not stumble when we see those used of God who then flee from Christ, who leave the faith, who eventually show outwardly the rebellion against Jesus Christ, the King and Head of the Church. That should not cause us to stumble. It should cause us to grieve, but it also should cause us to be comforted because we know this is Christ's plan. This is His plan as King and Head of the Church for the making His glory known. Just as His perfect plan here with Judas was all for the good of the church. And it teaches us a lot of things. It happens, friends. Men will come who are great, marvelous preachers. Even some so mesmerizing, they have the the Scottish accents that uh, Americans love, right? And we eventually see they fall. They lead a life of rebellion against Christ. Are we shocked? We're often shocked by it? Yes. But then sometimes uh, we too fall and stumble. So it shouldn't be all that surprising to us. But today we ought to learn that Christ shows us that this happens, this has happened and will happen in His church. Because it's part of His plan as King and Head of it. It doesn't invalidate the truth that has been preached if the truth truth was preached by that man who turned from Christ. It doesn't invalidate the sacraments which He... False minister administered either. The truth is what stands. The word spoken in the truth stands. The baptisms are still baptisms. The supper that you partook in is still the supper. Nothing is based on the man. It's all based on Christ and His word spoken. The truth. What this does show though, friends, is that graces, the graces the Lord gives are no guarantee of a new heart. No guarantee. So that we should be, we should not be so taken by the graces as to think those very gifted men could, could not also be wolves in sheep's clothing. And that's why we need discernment, friends. That's why elders especially need discernment. That we don't look to the man, but we look to Christ. To hear Him speak His Word through a preacher. But we come to hear Christ, not the preacher. And all the truth we hear from His Word we must submit to. Because He's the King and Head of the church. We don't don't get caught up in the falling where a man is outstandingly, brilliantly gifted and he starts to preach and teach falsely. Damages coming upon the church because of Him. But so many people will then say, because there's the, the ministry has done so well, and He's so brilliant. No, it can't really be bad. It can't really be false. It can't be because He is so incredibly gifted. Look at His abilities. And Jesus' message to you today is, don't look at the abilities. 
Don't look at how much or little one is gifted. Look at what he's doing in his life. And saying when he preaches and teaches. Judas was a greedy, covetous man. We saw that before he betrayed Jesus. If we were reading the Scriptures for the first time, maybe we just didn't catch it though. Just like the disciples at that time didn't catch it. But he was a a greedy, covetous man. Who went along with the calling of Christ. Many men like that today who are officers in Christ's church. But the fullness of who Judas was, was unknown to the other apostles until it came to a full expression when he betrayed Jesus. When he betrayed the king. And so you can't rely upon any outward position you may have in the church of Christ as proof that you are on your way to heaven. Judas was an apostle, an apostle on his way to hell. That's an officer of the church, friend. The same if you are a member of the church. Just because you're a member of the church does not mean you have a new heart. It doesn't. It doesn't guarantee that you're a Christian on your way to heaven. Because here's a man who was an apostle, yet on the broad way leading to destruction. Then surely you can be a member on the membership role on the same broad path. It's possible. Think of the Corinthian church who had so many marvelous gifts. And that's why Paul talks to them about all these graces the Holy Spirit pours out upon different people. And what did the Lord through the Apostle Paul tell the Corinthian church? Just as what we're supposed to do this coming week. Examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. They have all these spiritual gifts, spiritual graces. Examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. He doesn't say you have all these gifts of the Spirit, you'll be fine. No, he says examine yourselves whether you're in the faith. So graces do not guarantee a new heart. The fourth point, last point, the kingdom is announced. The kingdom is announced, verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Israel, the visible church on earth at that time, the outward church was a very rebellious church, weren't they, at that time? We see that a lot in the Gospels. And so the time was coming when Romans 11, those unbelieving branches of the Jews would be cut off and the Gentiles would be grafted in, but not yet. And he's forming the group of the apostles here, and and these would go out first to the declining, visible church at that time. And this would lead to a great division. Those who receive the truth would continue as the church with their children. They would submit to the replacement ordinance and sacrament of baptism, which replaced circumcision. They would submit to the repeatable ordinance of the Lord's Supper, which replaced Passover. And they would put themselves under the government of the apostles under Christ's authority, because He's the head and the king of the church. And their fellow elders rather than the Jewish Sanhedrin. But the unbelieving world, unbelieving would, of the Jews would continue to plague the church until, until the Lord's judgment came upon them in 70 AD. So Christ sends forth these apostles to the lost sheep of the house of Israel to preach that the King, the Messiah had come. The kingdom is here. Even after Christ's resurrection, He gives them a a priority. Acts 1. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be my witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. But He doesn't give that yet. 
Christ's design was for the message of the gospel and the kingdom would be preached to the house of Israel first. They need a shepherd. And why do they need a shepherd? Because they're rebellious. And they've gone off to other shepherds that are false. And that's what the prophets talk about in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. The evil shepherds and how there's a good shepherd in Christ. And after the resurrection, it would be preached, this kingdom would be preached, continue to be preached amongst the dispersed Jews because of all the persecution. And so that there would again be a division between those who believe the message and be brought in and those who refused or rebelled against it who would be cut off. All these rebellious Jews of this day who don't believe are about to be cut off. That the Lord would call the Apostle Paul to be the one who goes then to the Gentiles with the word. The gospel would go to the uttermost part of the earth. And the unbelieving Jewish branches are going to be, Romans 11, cut off. At the same time, the Gentile wild branches are going to be engrafted in. And here in Matthew 10, Christ was forming this united group of apostles who were to lead the way in the separation or the discrimination between the believing and unbelieving branches after the resurrection. That would begin now before the resurrection in the preaching of the kingdom. Verse 7, And as ye go preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick. Cleanse the lepers. Raise the dead. Cast out devils. Freely ye have received, freely give. Notice that they had freely received power from Christ, the graces, the gifts. They had freely received the kingdom as well. And so they were to go out and freely give. Just as they were freely healed by God's grace in Christ, so they were to go out and heal others. They freely received this power, so they were free to, freely to go out and use it. You have been brought into the kingdom freely, and so you're to freely spread and give this kingdom by speaking the word to others, calling sinners to repentance. The king has come, and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The time has come when the great advance of the kingdom of grace was now here, because the king is here, the Messiah, the Christ, was here. There were to be great changes. And they were to preach this. And they were to perform by His grace these miracle signs. Verse 1 and verse 8. Those miracles. All of which pointed to whom? Christ the Messiah having come. His kingdom come. That He is the deliverer from sin as we've heard before. Christ performed miracles. Chapters 8 and 9. And He gave power by His sovereign authority to the apostles to perform those same miracles as His spokesmen. All their ministry, their preaching, their teaching, their performing the miracles. Chapters 5 through 9 all pointed to whom? Christ! Right? The King and Head of the Church. Second Corinthians 12, it says, Truly, the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Hebrews 2 says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord? Think of chapters 5 through 9. And was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. The apostles, they're following after Christ as His infallible spokesman. Confirming with mighty miracles under Christ's authority. Showing Christ is the Savior of sinners. Why are these graces and gifts, miracles and wonders, why are they not given today? These miraculous sort of graces, Christ isn't... One, physically present on the earth with us. Nor are His infallible spokesmen present with us. The apostles and prophets. They're not here. What we do have is the Bible. Praise God. 
All which declare the great miracles having been performed. John 20 and many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of His disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written. So every, everything in John, but really it really applies to all the Scripture. These are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through His name. The miracles given at the time of Christ and slightly afterwards in the time of the Scriptures when they were given. The miracles at that time authenticate perfectly the revelation, the revelation that's given by God. Perfectly. And so, we don't have, as we don't have infallible spokesmen like Moses in the Old Testament, Jesus Himself being the God-man, of course being infallible, even the apostles in the New Testament. We don't have them here with us today. If we had miraculous gifts today, that would make more That would not make more sure the word that we have. It would rather blur and confuse the distinction between the fallible and the infallible. Because all you have today before you is the fallible spokesman. We don't have the infallible spokesman of the apostles and the prophets. We have fallible preachers. Fallible teachers. And so it would only blur and confuse the distinction between the fallible and the infallible if those miraculous gifts were still given today. The preachers today, they expound, they preach that which is infallible, the Word, the very Word of God, and the signs and wonders given at that time beforehand, when the Word is revealed, they stand, those miracles, those signs, stand to authenticate this Word in its entirety. It's now your duty not to desire and look for signs and wonders. So don't pray, Lord, give me a sign. We're not to look for those signs and wonders, but to get the infallible Scriptures before you and search them to see what is preached and taught is Lord willing according to the testimony that we find in the infallible Scriptures. And so the infallible Scriptures are before you. You have them. These are God's words. They have been authenticated. They are His very breathed out Word. And you being a member or an officer of the church is no guarantee that you have a new heart and are saved from your sin. But you should know today that Christ has come in power and authority. And today He calls you to turn from your sins. That He is the great substitute of sinners. That He took the place of the sinner who believes in Him by taking all that sin, the guilt, the condemnation upon Himself and He bore the wrath of God upon the cross. And in that perfect life He lived, substituted to you. Justification, righteousness to you. And you're called to see your sin. Examine yourselves whether you're in the faith. You say, I have a great church, seem to be living a a good life, Christian life. And you're called to examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. You are to come, especially this week, coming week, as you examine yourselves as we come to the Lord's Supper, a great opportunity to remind ourselves that every week we should be examining ourselves, not just when we come to the Lord's Supper. But especially this week, a great reminder to do it because we failed at examining ourselves. To examine ourselves and come sinner when you find your sin and turn to Christ and believe on Him for salvation. Come to Christ. Turn to Him. And His blood will cover all your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Let's pray.
Our Father, thank You for Your Word. We're thankful for the church, the offices of the church, and the officers who are faithful in Your church. We do pray for the offices, officers of this church that You would make them more faithful, that You would grant them greater godliness, greater love for You. And the Father, we pray that You would raise up new officers, men, uh, to hold forth the word of life and to teach Your Word and to rule in governing Your church, all under the authority and head of Christ the King, who is the great head of the church. Father, we pray that You would help us this coming week to examine ourselves, whether we're in the faith, And if we're in the faith, Father, whether we have been following You faithfully, that we would not tempt ourselves to become like Judas, but rather to be strong and continue on in sanctification like Peter and many other apostles and the many disciples, true disciples who have gone before us. Father, grant us greater faith. And give us a penitent heart or that heart that longs to repent of our sin and longs for forgiveness and pardon from You. And Father, we're thankful that You and Christ freely offer forgiveness from our sins in Him. And show grace to us and mercy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.